I, I, I fought back a tear just a second ago when you were talking about this uh, this vision for new creation. It 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 really is it hopeful in the truest and most substantial sense of the word hope. Yeah, yeah. You know, this this confident expectation that God's goodness and fullness uh, will or God's goodness will be brought to its fullness. Yeah. In in due time. And and the images there are, are so powerful. You know things like. Uh, well, the ones that are commonly known, but some of them, the ones that are missed too, the absence of things, you know, um, mm. there's no uh, temple because God is with us. There's, there's no night because uh, God is, is, God is light. There's uh, no sea of chaos because God has brought his shalom. Well, Dr. Gorman, thank you so much, sir, for joining us on Faith in the Folds. It is a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Kevin. I'm delighted and honored to be here. Thank yes, you. sir. Dr. Gorman, for folks who might not uh, be familiar with your academic work, can you uh, let us get to know you a little bit? Where you're teaching? How long have you been teaching? What other kinds of fun things are you up to? Help us get to know you a little bit, sir. Sure, thanks. Well, I've been teaching at the same institution for 30 years, wow. so I've been, I've been around a while. Yeah, I am at St. Mary's Seminary and University in Baltimore, Maryland, mm -hmm. which is uh, an interesting place. It's the oldest Catholic seminary in the United States. Oh, okay. And it's the only one in the world, as far as we know, that has what we call an ecumenical division, basically another seminary within a seminary. Okay. So we have these, these two entities hand in hand, if you will. So by day, we're a residential, uh, well, full-time residential in-house uh, set of men studying to be Roman Catholic priests. Mm -hmm. And in the afternoon, evening, and weekend, sometimes people come in from all over the place, from all, every imaginable denomination to study um, together in uh, what we might call an interdenominational environment, mm -hmm. Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, everything you can imagine. About 40% uh, of our students are African-American. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's an interesting, diverse place. Um, I teach in both divisions and have the almost the entire time I've, I've been there. I'm a okay. Methodist. I'm a Methodist in a Catholic institution with this ecumenical, <laughs> uh, ecumenical division. That sounds like the beginning of a good joke. Yeah, right. Could be. <laughs> um, but my, my own specialty is... Really, I have several specialties, but I, I mostly research, write, and teach in the area of Paul. But I have also uh, done a lot in the Gospel of John mm -hmm. and uh, the Book of Revelation, which is obviously what we're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. I've been teaching that off and on for the almost those in the entire 30 years. So, yeah, yeah it's a bit yeah. about me. Well, I, I appreciate you sharing that, I, and I, I did not know that you uh, that you ha had a Methodist background. Um, I, I remember one time I, I won't I won't rat him out which professor this was, but I was interviewing for the doctoral program at Asbury Seminary, and with a name like Asbury, you automatically know. Okay, well, it, this this has certain kinds of leanings to it, and I accidentally referred to Asbury as a Methodist seminary, and he said, "Oh no no no, 
were Wesleyan, Wesleyan. <laughs> not Methodist. And at the time, I did not know the difference. Yeah, I quickly learned, uh, given my given my time there, and and really enjoyed, like you said, some of the uh, some of the religious diversity there that was um, mm. that seems to be apparent at St. Mary's. It was also true at Asbury. I had uh, I had mentioned earlier Craig Keener, my my uh, doctoral advisor. He calls himself a uh, um, Baptist. Uh, Methacostal or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard him say that too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we had Anglicans on the on staff, Free Methodist, Methodists, um, you know, and anywhere in between. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's a, a wide range of Wesleyan perspectives for mm-hmm. sure. In our institution, in our in a class, I could have a, a Church of Christ, a um, Baptist. I've heard of those guys. Yeah, a Baptist, a Pentecostal. Uh, an AME, a Catholic, a Lutheran, uh, a Presbyterian, all sitting in the same circle. So it's really fun. Yeah. 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 I, um, I, I don't get that same mix on my Sunday morning Bible classes. <laughs> I could, Understood. That would be, uh, that'd be, that'd be a treat to, to get to deal with that. Dr. Gorman, as you mentioned earlier, we are here to talk a little bit about the, the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. Can you help us starting off before we dig into it? What is the genre? What is the literary type of this this beautiful collection of things? And what does that then tell us about the aims of the book of Revelation? Yeah, great, great question. Most scholars refer to the book of Revelation as a hybrid document. Okay. That is to say, like a dog, uh, a mixed breed, if you will. It's a, it's so, a mutt. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this mixed breed, what does it consist of? Well, at the beginning, the very first word in the book of Revelation is apoxa, apocalypsis in Greek, which means revelation, which mm. is why we call it the book of Revelation. By the way, I hope all your listeners know that revelation is singular, yeah. not plural. <laughs> Uh, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, first yeah. words of the um, of the book. So it is generally classified as an apocalypse or a, a revelation. That is to say, it is part of the literary form of apocalyptic literature. Let mm-hmm. me come back to that in a moment. I'll mention the other two. Thank and you. Come back. Yeah. So secondly, the second part of this hybrid is it is a prophetic book. It's prophecy. Mm-hmm. It refers to itself that way, both at the beginning of the book and at the end. So this is this is prophecy. And again, we have to define that, but I'll hold that definition off just for a moment and mention the third one. And that is that it is a letter. And that is to say these this apocalyptic prophetic book is inscribed in a real life letter Mm -hmm. from a real person to real people to real churches. And I'll I'll work backwards to talk about the importance of that. But starting there, it's really important for us to realize that there are seven churches to whom this book is addressed. Mm -hmm. And these are real people on the ground in the first century in what is today Western Turkey, Ephesus, Laodicea, Smyrna, Philadelphia, not the one in Pennsylvania. Uh, and, And so, I mean, I think symbolically seven means it's and even the messages themselves say, let the spirit, let those who hear what the spirit is saying to the churches, plural. 
but the number seven is also symbolic. Th these messages are for us. But first of all, they were for that for that early church. Understood. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'll say something. I mean, you can come back at me if you want, but I'd like to say something more about prophecy and apocalypse. Yeah. But starting off with these letters, it's it is helpful to know uh, chapters two and three right there. Each one is introduced or uh, addressed to a particular group in a particular time. And yet you're you're right to point out that they are also for us, maybe not necessarily to us, but they are for us in in a sense. They're the issues mentioned in chapters two and three about forgetting your first love or you know being neither hot nor cold or anything along those right, lines. Right. Oh goodness. I mean I, I could have I could have preached that sermon on Sunday. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think the speaking of preaching, I think the easiest part of the book of Revelation to preach from and the most commonly preached from mm. well are chapters two and three. Yeah. One of my just on the sidebar, one of my great privileges over the last 20 years has been to lead trips to Turkey. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. Greece, Greece, Turkey and Rome. But we spend a lot of time in Turkey and uh, study tours. And you go to these places and you see the ruins and things come to life. You think about aspects of uh, the life in Ephesus or the life in Laodicea that you, you connect to these messages, these, these so-called letters. Um, and it, it, the whole book just comes to life when you're, when you're there. So I've, I've enjoyed doing that uh, off and on for the last 20 years. Yeah. I, before we started recording, I, I mentioned uh, one of my professors from seminary, Dr. Richard Oster, who for this series that I've been doing in the podcast on the books of the New Testament, I interviewed him for First Corinthians. Hmm. And uh, I had the great privilege of taking a class entitled New Testament World with Dr. Oster, right as he was in the, in the last stages of publishing his commentary on the first three chapters with Wiffenstock on, on Revelation. And so we had all kinds of great information about the archaeology of the cities and iconography and things along those lines. Yeah, it yeah. Without even having gone over there yet, that kind of stuff really brought to life some of the issues that, uh, that John addresses here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Corinth is one of my favorite places of all time. The lo lovely place to visit. <clears throat> so we've, it, it's letters. Yep. These short, short letters that... Um, that well, would no, be I... I would say that I would say the thing as a whole is a is a letter. At least it, it's okay. That form, even at the beginning, grace and peace type language, mm -hmm. and at the end. But I don't refer to those messages in chapter two and three as letters because it's not wrong to say that. But uh, it's the the entire book was delivered to each congregation. It's, uh, it, that's it right. Appears. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so there's direct messages to each group. Mm -hmm. but the whole thing is delivered as as a whole, as a letter that's going to circulate, if you will. And, and also th th this is debated, but um, there are some scholars and I think they may be onto something who suggest that these messages are more like prophetic utterances that we see in the Old Testament or even like the edicts from an emperor that we see in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. So. They they have more than a uh, they have more than a regular letter quality to them at least in chapters two and three. Yeah, yeah, I, that that definitely makes sense to describing them as kind of an edict from an emperor. Um, there at the uh, 
Yeah, right, right in chapter one, verse eight, I've got my text right above my screen here. Chapter one, verse eight, there is a very clear statement. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who was and is and is to come. And uh, that kind of uh, introductory language does strike one as the kind of thing that would begin similar kinds of edicts from emperors mm -hmm. in, in the ancient Mediterranean world. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just at watching an excerpt from the, the new Dune uh, movie <laughs> yeah. sent to me by a student about the nature of faith, you know, and they've got this imperial edict being announced and there's a, a description of loyalty and uh, anyhow. So, yeah, I think you're onto something. Yeah, I can I can see that. So the whole book is a is a letter of sorts. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned that it has aspects of prophecy and apocalypse yeah. to that. Yeah. Can you help us dig into those a little bit? Sure. So let's talk about prophecy first. I mean, when most people hear the word prophecy, they think predicting the future. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And especially when we talk about the book of Revelation, everybody is absolutely, almost everybody's absolutely certain that some timeline is being given there. Yeah. But if we think of prophecy in the more biblical sense of the word, prophecy is a word of judgment and or salvation given to a particular people at a particular time. Mm -hmm. And that may or may not involve predicting the future. Right. Um, and when it does involve predicting the future, it's primarily not to predict the future in it as an end in itself, but to say, look, here's the consequences of not listening to God, or here are mm -hmm. the consequences of your disobedience. And here's the promise of future salvation. So it's, it's really important for us to understand it as, as, a, as a word of judgment and a word of salvation, rather than simply a prediction of unfolding events. Right. Revelation is not an advanced script of what is going to happen in the mm -hmm. quote unquote end times. And yeah. that, that, that really leads into the apocalyptic dimension, but yeah. Yeah, I, I like how you, how you really dig into prophecy and, and caution people about you know don't hear the word prophecy as predicting i you mentioned earlier your work with the gospel of john and so this will be very familiar for you in john chapter four where jesus is there talking with the woman at the well he tells her not about her future right he tells her about her past and her response gives us a very clear indication of the kinds of ways people thought about prophecy in the past. He tells her about her past, and she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Good point. And so Jesus isn't yeah. predicting anything necessarily. He's telling her about other things that he would not necessarily mm -hmm. have, uh, you know, he would, that he would not be privy to, but is, you know, prophetically speaking uh, towards her. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's that's one of my favorite go to examples in any kind of church audience like yeah, uh, hey, that's, that's prophecy good. is not this, uh, not always this. Yeah. And so as a as a message of judgment or salvation. And, and, and like and you mentioned, or, yeah, and we get yeah, we yeah. get both and we get both in Revelation. For very sure. true. Yes, very true. As a message of judgment and or salvation, especially along like it, if, if you the audience continue along the lines or continue along the trajectory that you're currently tracking with things will happen and um that that is a pretty clear message uh, throughout throughout the the book here yeah help us with uh, help us with apocalypse though you mentioned that uh, yeah. some of the end time stuff the, the apocalypse might deal with that are, it, 
here's a softball. Are there any other apocalypses that we might be aware of in the Bible? <laughs> well, there are other apocalypses, but um, there's a lot more outside the Bible than inside Ooh, the Bible. Okay, yeah. But uh, the book of Daniel, of course, is one that most people, or at least part of the book of Daniel, associate with apocalyptic literature. Mm -hmm. And of course, the end of, uh, toward the end of the Gospels, uh, we have apocalyptic-like language and imagery in Mark 13, for instance, and so mm -hmm. forth. And, and even in, in most of uh, Paul's writings, we have images of the final judgment that are often referred to as apocalyptic in, in nature. But I think what's really important to understand about apocalyptic is that the word apocalypse does not mean destruction. Right. And people often associate it with that because, you know, even movies like Apocalypse Now, right? Um, yeah, exactly. Apocalypse means revelation, but apocalyptic mm. literature, what, what does it reveal? It reveals, um, and I'm, I'm going to sound like I'm contradicting myself a little bit, but I'm, I'm not. I just need to explain how I'm not. Apocalyptic literature unveils that which is unseen because it's in heaven or mm -hmm. not on earth. So it's a kind of vertical, if you will, unveiling. And then it's also unveils the future uh, because that cannot be seen, obviously, um, and sort of a horizontal unveiling. But again, not in the sense of predicting day by day, week by week, month by month, episode by episode, right. but rather showing the consequences of sin, the consequences of evil, the future of evil, and the future of, of God's triumph over all of that. Mm -hmm. and, and, and most importantly, I think about apocalyptic literature, and this is the, the thing that people really need to grasp. Now, apocalyptic literature uses a lot of imagery, and it's, it's best compared to a series of political cartoons. Okay. Yeah. Now, you, you have your go-to uh, illustration of prophecy, so I'll do my go-to illustration of prophecy. All right, I'm ready. As, an, as a political cartoon or a series of political cartoons. Mm -hmm. So what I often say to my students when we first start studying the book of Revelation is this. Suppose in 500 years, somebody finds a newspaper from the 2020 election campaign. Mm -hmm. And apart from the human participants in that, they find in the newspaper um, pictures, drawings of a talking elephant and a talking donkey. <laughs> and so it would be completely erroneous of this person 500 years from now to conclude, ah, back in the 21st century, 500 years ago, they had talking donkeys and talking elephants. Mm. <laughs> this, this is purely symbolic language. Yeah. yeah. And so, for instance, when Jesus comes riding on a white horse with a bloody garment and a sword, mm -hmm. this is not to be taken as a depiction, but as a symbol of certain things, the triumph of Christ through his word and by virtue of his death, yeah. his, his shedding of blood. Mm -hmm. So many other things could be solved if we just understood that apocalyptic literature is this series of symbols rather than some kind of you know, literal, quote unquote, prediction of um, the end. Now, somebody's going to immediately say, well, Dr. Gorman, you're not taking the Bible literally then, uh, or you're not <laughs> taking it very seriously. You're not taking it as inspired literature. No, quite yeah. the contrary. I'm taking it very seriously for what it is. Mm -hmm. um, 
That is to say that God has chosen different um, literary forms to convey truth and to convey the message that God wants us to, to hear and to know. Um, I would also contend that people who say they take Revelation literally actually don't. Uh, you definitely have to pick and choose what things you take literally. Well, and for the most part, the literalness has to do with um, supposed literalness, literal, literalness uh, ends up being sim symbolism that is allegedly uh, literal. So I'll give you an example. There are a number of people who've suggested that in, in chapter six and other places where you have kind of animals depicted as, as, um, as part of the scenery, um, if you really took that literally, you would think they were literally animals. But most literal interpreters of Revelation, for instance, take the, the uh, locusts as something like uh, gigantic helicopters. Well, right. how literal is that? Right, yeah. Yeah, it's not literal. Yeah. The, the literal way to take that would be to say there's going to be giant locusts flying around. So what's right. going on there is the, the interpretation is still symbolic, mm -hmm. but the content of the symbol is drawn from the 20th or 21st century instead of from the first century. Mm -hmm. And that's where people often make a huge mistake. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like what Michael Bird, um, New Testament scholar out of Australia, has said yeah. in, his, uh, in his delightful uh, short book, uh, Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible. I used that as a springboard for a class I taught uh, in the winter at our church called Exploring Our Strange Bible. And it basically argued that, you know, we don't always need to take the Bible literally, but we do need to take it seriously. Something that uh, that Michael Bird suggests in his uh, in his book, and I think that's uh, that's absolutely right. The go-to example for that is, of course, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, and I asked the question at church. Okay, how many of you have sinned? I noticed you all raised your right hands. Okay. <laughs> but you didn't cut those off, right? Uh, so Yeah. 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 I mean, if I could say one other thing about uh, apocalyptic literature. Please, too, yeah. It it is often the case that apocalyptic literature is written as um as a way of dealing with oppression or being mm -hmm. an oppressed people. So it's often referred to by scholars today as resistance literature. Okay. And I would, I would nuance that a little bit and say, Revelation itself is a call to faithfulness. Um, most recent scholars don't think that Revelation was primarily written to people who were persecuted, but to people who were tempted to avoid persecution mm -hmm. by giving in. Mm -hmm. And... So revelation is a, is a call to faithfulness. Yes, there was some persecution going on. We know that. Uh, we ex the book expects more persecution. But I think the great fear is that people will uh, recant their faith or, or weaken their faith because of the threat of persecution. And in the case of, uh, we know that one Antipas has been martyred. So there, there, is, a, there is a case of martyrdom. Mm -hmm. 
but it's not the case, at least in most scholars' opinion today, that the book of Revelation is, is primarily written for people who are in a state of persecution. Yeah. So maybe instead of resistance literature, something along the lines of endurance literature or perseverance yeah. literature would make sense. Yeah, perseverance literature. Yeah. Yeah. That that segues very nicely to my next question about okay. major emphases in Revelation. The call to persevere runs throughout throughout the book. Can you help us kind of walk through maybe that call and maybe one or two other major emphases that we see tracking yeah. throughout the book? Yeah. Well, when I teach a basic uh, class in New Testament, I say on the first day of class, the New Testament really has two topics and just two topics. The first is Christology or Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. and the second is discipleship. So if we keep those two things in mind, what does it mean to, to talk about Jesus Christ and obviously Jesus Christ in connection to God the Father and the Amish? Sure, right, yeah. But, Jesus properly understood, yeah. Correct. Christology and discipleship. What does it mean to talk about Jesus Christ and what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? So if we take that throughout the New Testament and recognize how much of the New Testament does refer to the either reality or the possibility of suffering for the faith or giving up the faith um, grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, discipleship turns out in many cases to be embracing and embodying the reality that we are called to follow a crucified Messiah. Mm -hmm. So I connect them in, in the book of Revelation as I would in any other New Testament book, and I'll, and I'll say it in the following way. In the book of Revelation, one of the key emphases is who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus for us? As many theologians would say, who is Jesus for us today? And one of the answers, not the only answer, but perhaps the fundamental answer in the book of Revelation is that Jesus is the slain or slaughtered lamb. Richard Baucom, great uh, British New Testament scholar, pointed out years ago that that image for Jesus appears 28 times in the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. I find that really interesting because seven, of course, is the biblical number for uh, uh, completeness or perfection. Four is the number for the four corners of the earth or the four winds of the earth. Seven times four is 28. Is that coincidental? Bauckham says it's not. Um, I, I hadn't thought about that before. I'm, I'm getting chills. That's, that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. It yeah. is cool. And so it's a, it's a double whammy of, of fullness of perfection. So mm -hmm. I, that's why I would say that the image of Jesus as the slaughtered and resurrected lamb, mm -hmm. he's standing in chapter five, is the central image uh, of Christ in the book of Revelation. So there are other images that are related. Uh, I've already mentioned the one of Jesus on the white horse mm -hmm. as, the, as the victorious conquering Messiah. Uh, we have the image of him in chapter one, which is like the book of Daniel in terms of the ancient of days imagery. Mm -hmm. So it, there's images of, of power, but it's always, as we like to say, lamb power. We need to keep the, the lamb Jesus in connection to these images of, of power. Yeah. So what, what does it mean to follow a crucified Messiah who has been raised, exalted, 
is in heaven, seated, if you will, in the presence of God the Father. Yeah. What does it mean to follow that uh, that Lamb? And uh, the Book of Revelation has quite a few answers to that. But throughout the the seven messages, and then in images throughout the the book, um, we see that to be the um, followers of the Lamb is to uh, be faithful to the Lamb even when the figure of the lamb's opposite, properly or popularly known as the Antichrist, uh, is um, portrayed in, in chapter 13, is portrayed as the enemy of God's people. What does it mean to be faithful when you could be uh, much happier, perhaps much more secure yeah. if you if you went along with the idolatry of the Roman Empire, Roman gods, uh, bowing to the emperor, all those, all those kinds of things that we, mm. we come back to. So Jesus Christ, the slaughtered lamb, resurrected the true Lord, the true Alpha and Omega. What does it mean to follow him? It means to be, as you said, persevering in the midst of the temptation to, to go back to go on to idolatry, to be unfaithful. The, um, so that's one, um, yeah, one very important theme or, or pair of themes. Um, <laughs> another theme that I, I would mention, and we can come back to explore some of these in more detail, but I really would like to mention two other themes that I think are critically important. The theme of worship, which runs throughout the book of Revelation. Yes. There, there are beatitudes, there are hymns, there's depictions of worship. This is a book that calls us to worship. It calls us to worship the one true God and not to worship other um, idols, um, especially the idol of, uh, of of the Roman imperial system. And mm -hmm. that's, that's so much uh, at the heart of the book of Revelation is rejecting that. So it's about worship. And it's also about the church. There are images of the church. Uh, the church and the churches, if you will, and especially this image of the church in chapter seven and chapter 14 is a multicultural reality. Uh, this is actually Re Revelation seven may be my favorite picture of the church in the entire New Testament. People from every tribe and nation, language gathered together, uh, a kind of United Nations of, um, of believers. You mentioned, uh, before we went on the podcast, you mentioned Harding. And as I recall at Harding uh, School at the, at the university in, in uh, Arkansas, there is in one of the buildings, one of the main buildings, a large rotunda type structure mm -hmm. with flags from all over the world around it. I thought, mm -hmm. I think that was really a cool representation of the reality of the church and maybe even the reality of the student body. I didn't get a chance to ask. Yeah. Do you do you know what I'm talking I, about? I do. That is that is the uh, that is the Bible building. So the building where okay. the Bible classes are held <clears throat> above the the flags that hang in that rotunda is a mosaic of the world with the Great Commission written around it. Okay. And uh, one thing that Harding is especially known for within circles of Churches of Christ is it's um is it's a strong missions historically strong missions program hmm. 
and uh, so I, 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 I'm surprised, pleasantly surprised that you that you remember that. But uh, I, that that really is a is a striking image, especially when you first come in there and you see. I mean, you, you do have to look straight up, and you can get yeah. get a sense for it. It, it is yeah. uh, it, it is a neat experience. And I think that that's really valuable. And I may be getting into dangerous territory here, but that's especially valuable in the American context where we are prone to put American flags in Christian churches. And that I think the writer of the book of Revelation would frown upon. Yeah, I'm, I'm noticing in the corner of the screen here, I have <laughs> my little American flag. It's next to my Tennessee flag. I'm, I'm from Tennessee, although I live in, in uh, Texas these days. <laughs> I might need to, to, to lean where you can't see that right now. Uh, I, I saw that when I first came on, but... Uh, <laughs> I appreciate you staying with this and not bailing on uh, me. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to do anything else. Uh, but no, but I think it, with respect to church sanctuaries in particular, it raises a very serious question. If the church is multinational hmm. by definition, uh, there really is no such thing as the American church. Uh, there's the church that happens to be in America or the church that happens to be in Texas. And all of our churches should be open to the international reality of, of what the church is. So that's uh, apart from issues of perhaps um, the issue of the flag representing something more than simply uh, a symbol of the United States. It, 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 it's, it symbolizes for people a kind of, as we know, allegiance. People pledge sure. their allegiance to the flag. Yeah. Is that something that should be part of the Christian church. Uh, yeah. Anyhow. Well, I, I, I think, uh, I think you are right to, to raise that issue, particularly with the book of Revelation, because how often have, uh, you know, I'm only 36, okay? 9-11 happened when I was a sophomore in high school. And I remember when the Left Behind series came out, when it started when I was younger than that, how often has it been just in my short lifetime that usually it is the enemies of our country that uh, you know people will question um, you know is this the antichrist or something along those lines and and I like to point out to uh, to friends at church here that I'll ask them the question in what books of the Bible does the word antichrist uh, occur and everyone yeah. and every time somebody says oh definitely the book of Revelation I'm like are you sure about that? Uh, <laughs> But inevitably, it is an American issue or America's enemies or something along those lines that we look to and say, oh, this must be the beast or this must be 666 or something like that. And rarely do we look at the suffering of our brothers and sisters in developing countries and say, you know, are, are they asking these kinds of questions? And if, if they aren't, may, you know, should we be? Yeah. One of my fellow authors uh, uh, of books on the book of Revelation was teaching in Central America years ago. And um, he was teaching in a country where there had been an oppressive government. And mm -hmm. they got to the part of the book of Revelation where he wanted to ask them, well, where do you see the forces of evil and the Antichrist today? And he was absolutely certain that they would name their own government. And instead, what they all said to a, to a student was, we know who trained our, for, our, our evil forces. 
it was the School of the Americas in Georgia who had trained, uh, at least that was their perception. I, I can't sure, yeah. confirm it or deny it, so to speak. Yeah. But um, there are, your context will determine oftentimes what you perceive to be the enemy and what you perceive mm. to be even something as, as evil as, as an antichrist type figure. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And so this, um, you know, this call to worship is, um, is something that struck me a few years ago um, in the, in the midst of my doctoral program, I had direct access to uh, Craig Keener, a name I mentioned earlier and got his commentary on Revelation in the NIV application commentary series. Yep. And Revelation is not the kind of book that strikes you as one that is especially applicable to us today in the way that, say, Ephesians or Philippians or Romans mm. would be, or, or even one of the Gospels. But I, I, I think Dr. Keener... Um, no surprise. I think he did a great job with putting, to sh showing how a revelation at a practical level prompts us to worship and helps us, you know, helps peel the curtain back, and we see these heaven reality, heavenly realities that are are happening, and that they do influence, they do uh, spur believers to uh, to worship and to call out to God, to endure, to persevere. And things like that. So, surprise, yeah, surprisingly practical book too, the Book of Revelation. Yeah, absolutely, and I think in that same vein, it it propels us as the Christian Church to take seriously the dangers of falling into um, false worship of various kinds of idolatries mm -hmm. that we may not even be aware of. And the Book of Revelation can point these out to us, especially the political kind. And you know, in our country right now, this is. This is a real temptation to be so, um, uh, shall we say, enamored with one political party or the other that we almost make it into a to an idol, and uh, that's that's a that's a dangerous place for for a Christian to be or for a church to be. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, the the older I said, the older I get, I'm 36. <laughs> the older I get, right? Uh, the the more I do see that not uh, certainly not with everyone and I, you know friends and family on both sides right i said both sides yeah uh, on the major sides uh, friends and family on the major sides uh and there are clear instances when individuals not necessarily these friends and family but individuals uh, do treat those political allegiances political parties almost as if they are a religion yeah which would then make it uh, idolatrous Right, and that is that is so very dangerous, especially when one knows a little bit more about how, in the Roman Empire, there was no separation of church and state. There was a grand unity of church and state. The right. state was essentially the church, or the church was the state. However, you want to look at that. Yeah. Uh, could, could we? Would you be willing to just kind of give us a sort of a quick, very quick sketch of sort of what Roman imperial uh, cult and imperial religion might have looked like and maybe how that sure. is sort of in the background of uh, of some of the things especially in uh, chapters uh, 12 and 13 and following. right so in chapters 12 and 13 we we have what i call the unholy trinity uh, <laughs> uh, that is to say you have uh this you know dragon-like figure that's identified as satan mm -hmm. you then have the uh 
the two beasts, the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. The beast from the sea is almost certainly to be understood as the emperor mm -hmm. and the beast from the land as the, as the uh, people there in, in, on the land, so to speak, uh, in, in Western Asia Minor in, in Turkey, uh, who, uh, as, as chapter 13 say, says, um, who uh, provide worship of and compel people to worship the beast. Mm -hmm. So you have, from John's point of view, Satan behind this entity who's the emperor who is being worshipped instead of the true God. So you have this kind of unholy trinity, just like the holy trinity, if you will. Yeah. And um, that's why the Antichrist, even though the word's not there, the idea is, is certainly appropriate. You have sure. this figure who is the, the contrast to the, to the true Christ. And mm. uh, so in the ancient world, um, it was often believed that the political powers in, in, in power were put there by the gods. And this mm -hmm. was particularly true in Rome, a kind of theology or ideology, a doctrine, if you will, of, um, as you said, church and state. Of course, it wasn't really the church. It was, right. it was Roman religion. But Roman religion and Roman politics were inseparable. So if you, mm -hmm. if you believe that God has, or the gods, plural, have put the leaders in power, you need to keep both those leaders happy and those gods happy. So sacrifices to the gods, critically important. Obeying the emperor, carrying out the emperor's will. Uh, and and honoring the emperor become part of honoring the gods, so to speak. Yeah. So a cult or a religious establishment grew up around the uh, emperor, and it took a lot of different forms in different cities, different ways. But there were temples to the uh, deceased and sometimes living emperors and to their family members. There were games held in honor, sort of like a, a quasi-political, quasi-religious event. There were uh, ways of burning incense to the emperor in certain circumstances and offering sacrifices for or even to the emperor. So yeah. there's a variety of things called the, um, the cult or cults, plural, of the emperor. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the emperor was given certain names. It will surprise, maybe it won't surprise some people to know that the emperor was called Lord, Dominus. Yeah. Emperor was called Son of God. The emperor was called Savior. Yeah. And uh, before the time of Jesus, there is uh, an inscription that uh, circulated and was put in various places in that same area of Western Asia Minor, Tur uh, Western Turkey, that basically said, uh, we're going to honor Caesar Augustus by changing the calendar because of the good news of his birth, in which he came to bring <laughs> peace and salvation to the world. Yeah, um, I'm thinking. Well, well, that sounds familiar. I you could read that at Christmas time, and yeah, exactly. nobody would know. Or you're talking about Augustus. Yeah, you could read that at Christmas and think it's talking about Jesus. So, mm -hmm. who who is the real emperor? Who's the true emperor? Who's the one we really want to worship? Yeah. The entire New Testament says Jesus. As as Tom Wright likes to say, N.T. Wright likes to say, if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Amen. And uh, yeah, that's that's critical in the book of Revelation for sure. Yeah, yeah. And with that background, too, it's um, I, I think that that alone really helps uh, do a couple of things. Uh, one helps may help 
people have probably a, a better, more historically sensitive understanding of what the book of Revelation is trying to do, a message for, yes, for all Christians, but a message particularly to those Christians and not necessarily Christians for 2,000 years into the future or you know, 2,500 or however long it happens to be. Um, and so that helps maybe a more historically sensitive, uh, more historically yeah. grounded interpretation. I think yeah. that's true. At the same time, I think we face, and, and this is what makes the book of Revelation so interesting and exciting to me, I think we face a lot of the same temptations mm -hmm. and uh, the same challenges, and we may not be able to name them, but the subtitle of, of my book is um, uh, Following the Lamb into the New Creation, but the sub, there's sort of two subtitles to the book. The other subtitle is called Uncivil Worship and Witness. Uh, so what I'm talking about in, in, in when I talk about uncivil uh, worship, I don't mean mean-spirited worship, but we have in the book of Revelation a depiction of what is today called civil religion or Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. Then it would be Roman nationalism. Right, yeah. And so we have the same dangers and challenges today um, of, of making the state or the party or the government into, as you were saying earlier, a kind of uh, religious phenomenon that we that we devote our allegiance to. And this needs to be challenged. Yeah. Interesting, too, that um, the, the way that that appears to pan out in um and sort of the the stereotypes of um uh of how things how discourse in american politics uh, american uh, religious uh, christians have looked at their two parties one tends to gravitate towards the idea of of country as as god's country the other tends to gravitate towards uh, governing authorities as the means by which one can, you know, bring about the the work of the the work of the church. But still, you know, two di two different uh, poles there, whether country or or, or government, uh, but still inevitably missing the mark. I, I would say. Yeah, I found it interesting. I live only twenty miles or so north of Washington D.C. I found it interesting two weekends ago when the pro-life uh, march took place on a Friday, there were anti-pro-life people or, or whatever you want to call them, they call themselves pro-choice. But anyhow, there was the other side was there holding signs saying, my body, my choice. Well, that was on Friday. On Sunday, they must have loaned those signs to the other group, or at least some of them, because on Sunday it was the anti-vaxxers with the same signage walking around saying, my body, my choice. <laughs> so at the, at the core of, um, of American uh, politics right now, to some degree, is an understanding that everything is about me and about my freedom whether it has to do with abortion or vaccines. And I'm not trying to take a particular sure. yeah. uh, stand as much as I am to point out the, the 
ultimately these are kind of religious commitments and the book of revelations would want us to say what does either of them have to do with faithfulness to the slaughtered and, and resurrected lamb yeah. uh, what does it mean to be this multicultural people in the midst of a culture of uh economic illness and idolatry and that's a good description of the first century and the 21st century agreed agreed yeah one of the other things that i wanted to ask about was sure. uh, some unique contributions that revelation makes to the new testament i think we've touched on various points various contributions so far uh would there be any others uh maybe say the the robust vision of new creation that we see there at the just, end i was Great. just going to go to that yeah let's, let's run so, with that um just briefly i mean one of the things i like to tell my students is uh chapters 21 and 22 of revelation don't just end the book of revelation they don't just end the new testament they're the culmination of the entire biblical narrative from creation yeah. to new creation and we have these beautiful images that have inspired hymns and spiritual songs and and spirituals and art uh, when i teach the book of revelation we spend probably a third of our time every night i, I teach that course in the evening usually uh we spend about a quarter or a third of our time every night looking at artwork and music and uh literature all the things that revelation is inspired and a lot of that comes from revelation 21 and 22 and I think it's important for us in, in our time to hear that as part of God's call that we are we are looking forward to a new creation and and, and that's not going to be the destruction of this creation, but the unveiling of God's purposes for this entire creation, which means we have a responsibility to prepare for that to evangelize in light of that, but also to, to care for the world that God's been given, that God has uh, given us. Um, and uh, yeah, so yeah. it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful vision for sure. It is. Yeah. And uh, there are hints of it here and there throughout, uh, throughout the New Testament, especially uh, yeah, if you kind of track the theme of the Holy Spirit's role in creation from Genesis and uh, the hints of oh, Holy Spirit, creating new new things yeah. or renewing things um <clears throat> through um you know, passages in in ezekiel and so on and then you bring that in through the outpouring of the holy spirit and all, on yeah it, I, I i know i i have read those verses enough times at funerals or sitting with friends and so it's i i, I, I fought back a tear just a second ago when you were talking about this uh, this vision for new creation it it, it really is it, hopeful in the truest and most substantial sense of the word hope yeah yeah you know, this this confident expectation that god's goodness and fullness uh will or god's goodness will be brought to its fullness yeah in in due time and and the images there are, are so powerful you know things like uh well, the ones that are commonly known, but some of them, the ones that are missed too, the absence of things, you know, um, mm. there's no uh, temple because God is with us. There's, there's no night because uh, God is, is, God is light. There's uh, no sea of chaos 
because God has brought his shalom. So beautiful images. Yeah, yeah. Here at the end of our time together this afternoon, Dr. Corman, would you be willing to share with us what is your favorite or perhaps one of your favorite passages from uh, Revelation? Yeah. Well, I've already mentioned uh, my favorite passage about the church, which is Romans. Uh, sorry, Romans. I, I'm teaching Romans this <laughs> Understood, yeah. Uh, Revelation chapter 7, the new creation. But probably my, my favorite is the, the two panels of, of Revelation 4 and 5, the worship of God on the throne and the worship of the Lamb, that how they go together. And there's so many beautiful images there about the all of creation worshiping and uh, I, I'm I'm big into worship in general. That's I, I'm I'm one of the people who plan worship for our church. And uh, my son is a systematic theologian. One of his specialties is worship. I think that has come through our family. And okay. um, yeah, so I, I would I would I would say Revelation four and five for all those reasons. Yeah, understood. Uh, Dr. Gorman, as we wrap up, would you be willing to tell us um, where could people find Maybe some more resources from you. Um, are there any particular books about Revelation that you've written that you would want to point uh, folks towards? Uh, help us uh, maybe kind of be able to follow up on some of this stuff. Sure. Well, the only full-length book that I've written on Revelation is called Reading Revelation Responsibly. Okay. And you can get that uh, through my favorite bookstore, Hearts and Minds Bookstore in Dallastown, Pennsylvania. Or you can get it on uh, any of the traditional sites, Christian Book and Amazon and all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've written uh, nearly 20 books, and that is uh, one of the top two bestsellers of all, all the books I've written. So all right. been, a lot of copies have been printed of that. So um, there are other lots of other good people who've written about the book of Revelation. Some of them are listed in my book. I'll just name one that I would really recommend to people. Some people will know the name of Eugene Peterson, who yeah. was the paraphrase person for the message. Yeah. Eugene, who passed away uh, about two years ago, um, he had become a, a friend in the last, actually, he, <laughs> this is a funny story. He, was, he had been a pastor in the Baltimore area, and he usually, he used to teach the course at our institution that I took over on the book of Revelation. Did but not he know had, that. He, yeah. So he uh, he was a part-time professor, not a full-time, but mm -hmm. he um, he wrote a book called Reversed Thunder. Okay. Which to my mind is the most inspiring book on the book of Revelation. Uh, I right. sign it, it all the time in my classes. It's very readable. It's a lot about worship um, and prayer coming out of the book of Revelation. Yeah. Reversed Thunder, Eugene Peterson. I've got it here in my notes. I um, had a quote from Eugene Peterson in a class I was teaching just the other day that I found from A.J. Swoboda's book, After Doubt. This is mm -hmm. a, a teaching a Wednesday night Bible study entitled, Is There Life After Doubt? Modeled on this book. And... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, that uh, that quote from Eugene Peterson is like, oh yeah, he's the guy from the message. That that was really what I know him by. But uh, yeah, I'll be sure to mention this in in the description below when I when I um, share all this stuff. Sure, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dr. Gorman, do you have a website or uh, 
anything else along those lines that uh, you can uh, point folks to? I have a, a basically defunct website, so I will, <laughs> okay. it, it's there, but I don't, I don't right. do anything with it. Well, uh, the, well, best place, the best place to find anything out about me is either uh, uh, Wikipedia or, or the Am Amazon uh, author's page. Okay. All right. I can point to or I point folks, folks towards that. Dr. Gorman, I greatly appreciate your time, sir. It has been a treat to um, to dig through the the Book of Revelation with you. Uh, it, it is a perennially interesting book, and uh, this is actually the third episode in my podcast that has dealt in one way or another oh. with the Book of Revelation. Um, I'll point you to an earlier episode that I did with a friend named Garrett Best, who uh, defended his dissertation, uh, also at Asbury. Uh, looking at sort of the the grammatical uh, solecisms, the grammatical issues with Revelation, and and you know, he puts together an intriguing theory on maybe why that happens. And then, based on something that I had mentioned earlier about how American Christians uh, often look at events in American politics or world politics, and and say, well, surely that must be X, Y, and Z here in the Book of Revelation, um, and we might maybe miss what some of our developing world uh, friends and brothers and sisters in Christ look at. I interviewed my friend Garrett and a missionary that my home congregation sponsored for a long time in his work in Mozambique and how he, oh, he and Garrett both kind of tag teamed, uh, wrote an article about, um, <clears throat> about how uh, translating images from Revelation and using cultural images from uh, from the Maconde people in uh, sorry not Maconde um, from the tribe that he was working with uh, in Mozambique, showing some connections there of you know images of power and authority and uh, yeah and leadership. Who, who was that co-author? Uh, his name is Alan Howell. Yeah, I read that article before they published it. And Great. I, I have that article. Yeah. Good. I'm glad. I met, I met Alan. He had just gone to Harding when I was down there. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Good. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you connected with those guys. That's. Uh, I'm. I really like that article. Yeah, it's um, good. Good article and good people. Yes, sir. That's right. Dr. Gorman, appreciate your time, sir, and and thank you so much. We. Uh, I, I, I had a delightful time uh, getting to chat with you and getting to meet you, sir. I appreciate it, Kevin, very much. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye.